Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt. Coming to you from the KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but I am a photographer of over 30 years. And if a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you can say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This radio program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me, by Harvest House Publishers. Each week, we read one of the essays and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's essay is One Got Out, by Phil Calloway, who is best known for his humorous yet perspective looks at life. He's an award-winning author and speaker. Phil has written more than 25 books, including Making Life Rich Without Any Money. Phil is also a syndicated columnist and was the editor of Servant Magazine and a popular speaker for corporations, conferences, camps, and marriage retreats. He would say that his greatest achievement was persuading his wife, his high school sweetheart, to marry him. And with that, let's read One Got Out by Phil Calloway. When my eldest son was five, we were driving past the graveyard one sleepy Sunday afternoon, noticing a newly excavated tomb with a pile of dirt beside it. My son pointed and said, Dad, look, one got out. I almost drove off the road laughing, much to the surprise of my son. Now, every time I pass a graveyard, every time I see a church at the front of the church, I'm reminded one got out. Death could not keep our Savior in the ground. Jesus Christ, the one exception to all the rules, broke the chains of death, shattered our crippling fears, and promised us eternity with him. Most churches in which I have been privileged to minister have a cross. Some are carved into the pulpit, some hang on a wall, some are regulated to a foyer, but in old Greenwich, Connecticut, there is a cross like no other I've seen. It is a sturdy, ten-foot wooden cross, crafted like a thousand others. 
but this one is different. This one is bolted into the concrete floor in the center of the sanctuary. A preacher can't walk in front of the pulpit without stepping over it. The congregation can't listen to him without seeing it. A visitor can't enter without asking, Why there? Why the cross in the very center? The answer is clear. For the Christian, the cross must be at the very center, the very core of our lives. It is the central point of human history and the central focus of all who embrace the Savior who hung there one awful day 2,000 years ago. There was nothing good about that Friday. It left 11 men in agony. Perhaps they locked themselves away, asking questions none of them could answer. Until that glorious Sunday when one got out. I sometimes wonder if they returned to Golgotha after Jesus ascended into heaven. Did they look at a gaping hole in the ground left by a vertical wooden beam? I wonder if they smiled. And if Peter laughed and said, Hey, look, one got out. That ends the hymn, One Got Out, by Phil Calloway, submitted and included in the book, What the Cross Means to Me. Now, there's a poem preceding the essay by Martin Luther, which says, The cross of Christ runs through the whole of Scripture. The photo accompanying the essay is The Mercy. This image was shot very low to the ground. If I recall correctly, I was laying in the grass, laying and down, shooting up slightly to get the angle that I did. And the composition, the ball of fire, is at the same elevation of me, but it's setting past the horizon line, which just so happens to be located at the bottom of the left side of the foot of the cross. And that big setting sun gave the overall sky a unique and stunning yellow glow. The image screams of all yellow. The inspiration to the name of the image, the mercy, is found in Lamentations 3.23. Great is God's faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. Every morning. I heard a story once about a Greek monk who was very well known by his introductions. Instead of saying hello when he would meet somebody, whether he knew them or was meeting them for the first time, he would be reported to say, Tell me, dear brother, are we being saved today? But why? Why today? Wasn't yesterday good enough to cover today? Why do we need fresh mercies every new day? Why did Jesus say to take up your cross and die to yourself daily? Why did Paul say to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Fear and trembling? Those are 
pretty intense words. Especially fear. Fear of what? Of who? Well, King Solomon, in several different places in the Bible, said something to the effect of, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does this mean? Selah. Did not the Apostle Paul infer that once you accept the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross, you are in? Would someone say that he meant once and done? Yes? No. He said, God forbid. And my answer is that it depends, like a lot of things in life. And I'd respond yes and no. First of all, like the Passover story, once saved, once born again, we are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. This sanctification does separate us from being a part of the world. But being born again does not make us perfect creatures, nor does it make us a Christ or the Christ. We become a follower of Christ, and we emulate Jesus. We emulate his nature, and we follow his commands, avoiding our Adamic nature each day and striving to be in Christ. And even though we are not perfect, we can always strive to move from good to better each day. And if you have not discovered it already, entering through the narrow gate is not easy. We fail, sometimes more on some days than others, and sometimes we fall in a deeper way than on other days. And at the end of the day, we need God's mercy again. I mean, we tried. We really tried. We picked up the cross and we tried to carry it, but we fell under the weight of our own choices. So just as we seem to find new ways to fall out of God's favor, we seek the Lord for his mercy. None of us deserve God's grace, and we should always be grateful when we receive it. And we should always hunger for it and never take it for granted. Like a salesperson, always striving to bring in new sales to make enough commission to provide for his or her family. That kind of hunger. I like saying a prayer that goes back to the earliest of the early church and one still used throughout Eastern Orthodoxy. I would say it's more common in Eastern Orthodoxy than the Hail Mary is in Catholicism. It is called the Jesus Prayer, and it is very simple but very profound. And it goes like this, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you break it down, we see that each word has a depth of meaning. But that is not the point of today's devotion. Suffice it to say, there are many songs directly inspired by this particular prayer and other songs surrounding it, or with the same theme, or psalms based on the Latin word like Kyrie. There are versions of prayers like the Glory to God song, which in part goes like this. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to his people of goodwill. Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, have mercy on us. You take away the sins of the world. Receive our prayer. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. There are so many other related songs, like the Jesus, I Trust in You song, which goes in part, Jesus, 
I trust in you and in divine mercy. Jesus, I trust in you flowing from your heart of love, from the blood and the water flowing from your pierced side, fully divine and ever human. Jesus, I trust in you. For the sake of your sorrowful passion, have mercy on the whole world. Or another song, a version of the Lamb of God song, which goes, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Receive our prayer. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Grant us peace. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. I contend we in Christendom, in the ultra-Protestant West, should be a bit more humble, like our Eastern brothers and sisters. If this is the first you are hearing about these types of songs or prayers, then that is my point. I have a dear friend, a deacon in our local Orthodox church. He introduced me to an app, an AFM app, which plays Orthodox music, and I was struck by the majority of songs about seeking God's mercy. seems to be part of their culture, of their faith. I've mentioned in previous episodes how we are to keep our minds stayed on Christ, which for me means not having the TV on in the background, and especially not the TV news or cable news or talk radio, as these will rob my peace. They will steal my peace. No, for me, I like to listen to songs throughout the day. Many of these songs I just detailed, and they remind me to always seek God's mercy. Some listen to the Bible on, on audio. Some listen to Christian radio. point is, you get to choose what you focus on. Today. Now, they say, whoever they are, that one bad apple can ruin the whole barrel of apples. To me, taking God's mercy for granted can be like that bad apple, continuing that slow decomposing process throughout the whole barrel of apples. Paul said in Romans 6.1, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? It was a rhetorical question. And my answer would be, no, it's a very dangerous path to embark down. You know, the kind of path that's on an ultra-steep slope, one that means a small misstep could have you tumbling down the mountainside. But depending on God, trusting on God, seeking God instead of our own abilities, is like guardrails, keeping us safely on the path. The good news of the gospel is that God has provided a way. He has carved and laid the path, and he has set the rails. A good prayer that I pray every day is, Lord God, walk with me on the road to righteousness for your name's sake. And God is faithful, even in the darkest times. God's mercy will shine forth anew at the dawn, at the new day. Just as illustrated in the yellow sunrise image for this essay. And it relates to this week's devotional. My encouragement, inspired by the mercy image, is that no matter how dark the nights of life may seem, draw near and stay near to the cross. Now, when I received this essay submitted for the book, and I read the title, One Got Out, for some reason, I thought it was going to be talking about the good thief that asked Jesus to take him to paradise. 
I heard a preacher once say that the good thief was the first Christian. Yeah, that may be true if you're talking post Garden of Gethsemane, but I do recall him telling people during his ministry that their sins were forgiven. I don't know if that makes them a follower of Christ or not, because it seems the good thief did have that intention. He meant he meant to follow him into paradise. The good thief is a very special story for us that we can learn a lot about. The most obvious takeaway is that he chose to own up to his mistake, confessing his sins, and he asked to dwell with Jesus in paradise. Is this not what most of us say when someone asks, what must I do to be saved? Well, the first is the choice. God loves us so much that he gave us free will to love him or not. After we choose, then we own up to and confess our sins, asking for forgiveness. Then we follow Christ, asking him to be in us and for us to be in Christ. And even though the thief destined for hell that day, found a detour in Christ, and some might say got out of where he was headed in the grave, it was that he was not, the good thief was not what the essayist was writing about. And just before I got too deep into the essay, I thought maybe, actually right as I was about to read it, I thought maybe he was going to talk about Lazarus. Lazarus was certainly raised from the dead. He got out of the tomb. But no, that's not what the essay, as I started to read it, was talking about. And after I did read it, I I couldn't help but think of references like Matthew 27.53, where multiple people reported seeing the graves, the tombs, open and saints being resurrected. But no, the SAS was referring to Jesus. And still my mind wanders. I think about... Way in the future, in end times, around the times of the rapture, that many graves will be opened and that those who died in Christ will be raised from the dead. But still, the essay didn't talk about those, those group of believers either. No, it's something much, much more simple. The essay is built upon an innocent observation and a conclusion of a young child, something to him which made perfect sense. You know, we hear logical constructs like, if this, then that. We see this, and then we expect that to happen. I think children are even more ad- uh, prone to that than he- adults are. I remember when I was around the fourth grade, I was so excited that I had found a fossil off in the back part of the school grounds. I was so excited and ecstatic to show my friends what I had found. And I told them, this was the snake. I found a snake that was from before the curse in the Garden of Eden, when God took away the snake's legs. A few of my schoolmates looked confused for a moment, as if they had actually not even heard the Garden of Eden story, and didn't know what to say. And then one one guy said, Dude, that's a dead lizard. Yeah, it was a bit embarrassing. Um, it kept reminding of me of it throughout the day and for several days afterwards. Yeah, well, in the situation in the essay, the child saw an open grave. He never, ever considered that it was being prepared for a deceased person. The only logical conclusion that he came to was that somebody made it out of that grave. I can't imagine how funny that must have been to hear that kid say that in real time. The dad said he almost ran the car off the road. He was laughing so hard. And he said that he is reminded of that incident when driving past the cemetery. And he's also 
reminded of it when passing a church, in that it triggers him to reflect on how Jesus got out, how he rose out of the tomb into a resurrected life. Now, I relate to this trigger, but from another perspective, but it's always about churches, meaning I fall into a pattern that every time out on the road, when I pass a church, whether big or small, I make the sign of the cross and ask God to bless that church. Just a quick prayer, but I really mean it. Now, some might say my quick little prayer is inconsequential, but I believe that in the ethereal plane where angels dwell, it makes a big difference. That prayer is not just a drop of water in a bucket of water, but that it is similar to the account of Jesus teaching the multitude when he fed 5,000 people with two loaves of bread and five fishes. And likewise, that God can bless and multiply even the smallest of prayers. I saw a Tinkerbell movie once, The Pirate Fairy, I believe it was, in which Zarina, one of the main characters of this movie, is a dust fairy, meaning her tribe are all dust fairies. There are other tribes that have other skills, but this tribe's focus is managing and producing the pixie dust that all the other fairies use to fly, among other things, but mostly for flying. And that pixie dust is yellow, like the image of this week's episode image, uh, the Mercy. However, they have a base element called the blue dust. And a little tiny bit of the blue dust magnifies and has a multiplying effect on the regular dust. The common phrase in the movie was that the blue dust could make the yellow dust go from a trickle to a roar. Now, I know that that is an obscure movie reference, but if you saw that film, it encapsulates how I envision prayer in the dimension where angels live and work. That my blue dust prayer can multiply the yellow dust abilities of the angels, especially when praying for a church or standing in the gap by interceding for loved ones. And it makes my driving around a little more interesting as I always have an eye open for a new church to pray for. And it's also very cool because sometimes when I meet a pastor out and about and they tell me where their church that they shepherd is at, I, I get to say, oh, I know that one. I know your church. I prayed for it many times. After looking at me funny and I explained what I'm talking about, they say, oh, that is such a good thing. And I've had people report back to me that they now have the same tradition. You should consider it as well. Some are saying that the signs of Christian persecution are, are rising quickly. So our churches can use every bit of prayer that they can get. Now, our essayist, Phil, mentions that he has traveled through many churches, and most of them have a cross. And that there was a church in Old Greenwich, Connecticut, that really impacted him. A simple wooden 10-inch white cross, which almost sounds exactly like the description of the cross in my cross collection. But the Old Greenwich cross is bolted right there in the middle of the sanctuary. Now, according to Phil, its placement is, is really perplexing to a lot of people, as it seems out of place. Preachers have to walk around it when they're sharing a sermon. Any worship performances have to be set up around it. Any theory, theory, theatrical performances need to be choreographed and performed around it. And the question is why? Why there? Why right in the middle? Well, both Phil and I agree 
that the answer is hidden in the question. We as Christians should, should keep the cross in the center of our awareness as we go through the daily routines of our life. And if we plan our life around the cross, making the cross a central part of the core of who we are, it will help keep our minds stayed on Christ. Remembering that the day Jesus died, the day to ref- we refer to as Good Friday, was the most catastrophic day for Christ's disciples. Yet it was the most wonderful day for all mankind. A day of liberation, an independence day of sorts. Independence day from sin and enslaved to sin. Now, if you remember, I shared the poem that precedes the essay in which Martin Luther says, the cross of Christ runs through the whole of Scripture. I take it to mean that from the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, everything about the human condition was leading up to the moment on Good Friday when Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for the human race. Of course, his followers would not have any idea of this until they heard the tomb was empty and he appeared to them and uttered a new greeting to them, which was, Peace be with you. And that makes all the difference. Is it hard to believe that Jesus died after being tortured and crucified by the Romans? No. The real point behind the question of what the cross means to me is manifested in the events of Easter morning. One got out. Jesus got out. Jesus had gotten out not only of the freshly hewn tomb, but Jesus got out of the realms his soul visited. But some of us are curious. Where did Jesus get out of? Was not Jesus mortal and eternal? All man and all God? Was he not 100% human and 100% divine? And since the Bible tells us that Jesus was found to be completely free from sin, that he was sinless, so when Jesus died, did he not go to heaven? No? Why not? Did he visit the place we call paradise, where the good thief has to go? Well, of course, because Jesus told the good thief that they would be together in paradise. But the Bible also says that Jesus went to the realm of Satan. What? He went to hell? Yes. But was he sent there? Or was he on a mission like Rambo or James Bond? A rescue mission? Well, either way, the Bible says that that is where he went to the turf of the chief fallen angel, the master of the little kingdom with the lowest of lowercase k, Lucifer, who carved out that little kingdom for himself with the third of the angels. The Bible says that Jesus had, after the sacrifice of himself on the cross, obtained the authority to take back the keys to death, hell, and the grave. And then he came back to life. And the resurrection, the way that Jesus got out the whole topic unto itself. It was electromagnetically a resurrection process. And to me, it was paranormal. To me, it was cosmic, ultra-galactic type electromagnetic power that raised Jesus from the dead. And when he did, he had the keys of death, hell, and the grave, which means Jesus had the power and the dimensional authority to get to now get you out of any situation you go through in this thing called life. And even in a worst case scenario like dying, Jesus can get you out and into the eternal presence with his Father, all the saints, all the loved ones that also accepted the sacrifice Jesus willingly made. 
So just as Jesus began to greet his disciples in his post-resurrection body, let me also say, peace be with you. And if you are not a Christian, I would encourage you to ponder the sacrifice that Jesus made for you, both on the cross and in hell, retrieving the keys that can get you out of the grave and into an eternal life in heaven. I suggest you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and heal the painful parts of your mind and soul. Ask Jesus to come into your heart today. And with that, go in grace and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program heard every week on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed, like this week's essay, The Mercy, along with my other versepirations, then check out Magi Cross on Instagram. And if your church, youth group, or school would like to learn how to fundraise through the Magi Cross products, hear other cross podcasts, or read further meditative musings on the cross through my blog, then log on to magicross.com. That is M-A-J-I-C-R-O-S-S dot com. <laughs>